in the course of history, the predominant views or conceptions or relationships, ways of regarding the uh, imagination, the human imagination, have changed. There were huge, huge shifts uh, in, in, in the ways that uh, the Im- imaginal is conceived and, um, and thought about. Historically, certainly, um, say, three, four hundred years ago, before that, um, and, and, and back before then, um, there were many, um, many people, and probably the uh, dominant view, I, I don't know, was that something like an imaginal realm had an objective existence. And, and there are still many, many people today, I mean, they, they, there are... Uh, very small minority in, in, in relation to the dominant view, but there are so many people today who, who hold this view that the imagined realm has an objective existence. It's um, just as real, if you like, as this world of uh, materiality that appears to most of us like the only world. And this imaginal realm, with objective existence, with, uh, some of them would say, more reality than this world of materiality, um, exists as a kind of matrix of meaning around our uh, our space and time dimensions. So the world of space, of time, uh, etc., is kind of, if you like, enveloped by this imaginal realm, and this imaginal realm uh, generates or infuses um, meaning for us, direction for us, kinds of identity for us, images, fantasies, uh, and in that way influences us, and influences, if you like, uh, history because of that. And as I said, nowadays, this is a, this is an extremely rare view, um, uh, and we, it's very tempting to think that now we're smart, or I'm smart, so I don't believe such a silly view. I can see through that very easily as something that's obviously not true. But just a moment or two honest reflection will reveal, am I really so smart to have the view of of, uh, a, a negative prejudice against the reality of the imaginal realm? Or is it just that I'm... um, repeating, uh, reiterating the, the, the modern view, a view which I've been indoctrinated in, which saturates my culture. I haven't figured this out for myself or proven it to myself or thought through it. I'm just, I'm just a product of uh, indoctrination, really. It's not really that I'm so smart. But there is this view, uh, and there has been historically, uh, in lots of different ways, lots of different forms and articulations and shades of uh, emphasis, etc., of the uh, objective existence of this Im- of, of an imaginal realm, a realm of images that uh, is accessible to human beings, and especially accessible um, when the consciousness is, if you like, purified or trained, etc. 
So I can't remember if I said this in another talk or another retreat or not, but uh, there's a, uh, a theologian called Walter Wink, and he talks about this, and in a way he, he, he wants to point out the uh, modern prejudice we have and how rare that is in the course of human history. And so he takes something like uh, the ascension of Christ um, or the resurrection of Christ um, and, and says that this was a, if you like, a real event, a fact, but it, ha- it was something that happened not in the realm of materiality and actual physical body going up to heaven or whatever it was, um, or reappearing on earth, but it happened, this, um, the, the ascension and the resurrection happened in the imaginal realm, in the psychic realm. And even more than that, um, that this happening, these happenings in, in the imaginary realm, they changed God. So God, in, in this uh, Christian mythic view, God as incarnating as Christ, God as um, uh, reappearing in the resurrection, but, but also God as ascending into heaven to join his Father in heaven, uh, in, in that language. Um, this... Um, this ascending adds something to God. It adds a new dimension, a new aspect, a whole uh, changes God. So we're dealing now not with archetypes that are, um, if you like, fixed uh, at one level in the original meaning, but archetypes that are actually plastic, malleable, um, which to me is a more attractive idea. And yet... Within that, as, as I've spoken about before in, in, in other places, there's, there's also a kind of eternality. So this ascension, or, or, or this resurrection, is always happening. It's always happening, and it's always available, and not, not just, and not even primarily as a matter of belief. So often, that's the... Uh, emphasis in modern Christianity, especially after Protestantism. It's a matter of belief, of faith. But it's actually always happening, always available, always accessible to us in the imaginal realm, as image, uh, with all the potency of that. So historically, and as even a, bit, a little bit today, there are these kind of ideas of the reality of the imaginal realm. But but through history, um, things changed uh, dr- dramatically and radically. Actually, starting well, some people would start start the change in excuse me in the 12th century, others and 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 certainly um, uh, made more uh, emphatic uh, starting from the 17th century. Um, the rise of what we could call modernism, this this kind of view that is so normal, so unquestioned, so habitual. Uh, and pervasive in in our modern Western society. So, for example, there was the uh, elevation of the whole idea of reasoning, that what we know as human beings, uh, knowledge, comes from reasoning. And knowledge actually means something different than it used to mean, because it used to mean something more like union with what is known. That actually constituted knowledge, a union of the human being, of the human being's mind and heart and soul with what is known, as opposed to knowledge is a result of um, reasoning and uh, kind of empirical deduction, etc., and all that. So that was one aspect. And related to that very much was the whole um, 
change in relationship with um, study and, and reading. So again, before and the whole idea of uh, Lectio Divina, divine reading, the uh, study, studying something or reading something was a matter of sympathy. The being, the soul, uh, and the body, in fact, because people used to read out loud, uh, um, animated by the breath. Anima also it means soul, um, as well as life. So um, reading was to come into sympathy with uh, what we are reading. Sympathy means sympathetic resonance. So the whole being is resonating with what we're reading. The Christian uh, uh, mystic Hugh of St. Victor says, called this kind of reading, he calls it an ontologically remedial technique. Uh, strange, you think, what, what the hell is he talking about? Because the whole conception was very different. That the human soul and the human intelligence uh, were not separate from the divine soul, the world soul and the divine intelligence. So that reading, uh, Hugh of St. Victor says, brings uh, the, it, the, the light that comes from reading, from study, um, brings man, brings a human being to a glow. Because the intelligence that's reading is not different from the divine intelligence, uh, if you like, at the center of the being. We're going to return to these ideas, I hope, later on the retreat a little bit. And more generally speaking, um, historically there was a sort of shift towards uh, respecting and emphasizing more the teachings of Aristotle um, through uh, a medieval teacher called Averroes, um, over and above the teachings of Plato and a medieval teacher called Avicenna, um, and the kind of Neoplatonic teachings that were very pervasive um, in terms of uh, the nature of God and how God, if you like, um, uh, uh, permeated uh, or um, informed, influenced. Uh, uh, all aspects of creation through a kind of hierarchy of existence, if you like, um, uh, a hierarchy of emanations um, from God. So all these, this elevation of reading, this um, idea of what it means to know and to study, and uh, sorry, elevation of reasoning, that what it means to study, to read, to know, this um, shift towards Aristotelianism, away from the kind of more mystical teachings of Plato, um, all this is relevant to how we regard imaginal experiences. Reasoning um, is more trustworthy than an imaginal experience. Uh, if I want to, what constitutes knowledge is not um, something that comes through the imaginal. Um, uh, it's not a matter of sympathizing with a soul image, etc. Um, all of that and all the implied um, concepts and metaphysics that might be uh, either believed or, or, in our view, entertained. Um, all of this is relevant to uh, how we um, view uh, imaginal experiences and how we hold them and how and how much we respect or value them. So there is historically so this view of the reality of the imaginal realm, the more modern uh, dominant view of um, it's completely uh, fictitious, rubbish, not not real, does not constitute knowledge, etc. And we now, especially the people that showed up on this retreat, might might you know flip flop back and forth between those two positions. We might have doubt. Um, we move in and out of entertaining certain conceptual frameworks. This is our experience. <coughs> 
And actually, um, it's not that cut and dry, certainly not historically, and so you get a figure like Plotinus, um, sort of, if you like, the father of Neoplatonism, who had really um, a very sophisticated philosophy. I don't mean sophisticated in terms of complicated, but sophisticated in terms of um, there was a lot of insight there that to me is similar to some interpretations of Buddha Dharma, especially the teachings of emptiness, um, as I would uh, um, tend to want to frame them if I if I would try to put them into a, a sort of conceptual package. There's some similarities there. So sometimes, and again, there's a flexibility in, in his teachings in Plotinus. Um, so sometimes he would say... Um, only the transcendent, unfabricated, is real. The imaginal realm, the world soul, all that is not real on one extreme. There is only the real, the ultimate real, uh, beyond any anything you can say about it, beyond all experience, etc. And at other times in this flexibility of his teaching, of his approach, of his conception, um, there would be more this... Um, this teaching that all appearances, all, if you like, levels of being, um, dimensions of appearance, of perception, all of that is divine, including the imaginary realm, including matter, all of it. So for me, and uh, I think it's the platform that we're offering most on this retreat, is that there's something about, uh, we've talked about this a lot, so much worth repeating. There's something about um, understanding emptiness, and, and more than that, putting emptiness, as I said, the, the, uh, a radical emptiness, full, thorough, deep, comprehensive, a radical emptiness at the basis of the path, and really um, letting that bear its fruit in what unfolds in terms of experience, in terms of meditation, in terms of practice, in terms of what appears, in terms of conceptions. And what this does for me, the, de- the, deeper, um, the deeper one's realization of emptiness, the more it allows and legitimizes this play, this playfulness with ways of looking and conceptual frameworks, the, an ability to play with them, to entertain ideas, um, metaphysical ideas even, without holding them as and believing in them as true, or this is reality, or whatever. So for a lot of people, this permission is gained through um, emptiness, some degree of realizing uh, em- emptiness of everything. For some, it's through philosophy. For some, it's through philosophy of science, especially as science has moved on in the last hundred years or so with quantum physics and relativity, etc. So Niels Bohr, a Nobel Prize-winning physicist and and really one of the one of the central father figures of of quantum physics um very much central to his philosophy was the idea of complementarity so a statement um is at at the very same time both true and false or a statement that um, something is true means its opposite is also true. And this, he said, this became part of his, not only his life philosophy, but it became part of his life philosophy, but it emerged from from a deep, deep questioning, uh, mathematical questioning, but also philosophical questioning that came out at uh, uh, that, that time, beautiful time, uh, at, at, at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, this idea in relationship to truth that it's not quite as black and white or as neatly packageable or as single as uh, as as 
the modernist view would have us believe. So he also said regarding clarity, a clarity of truth, that there's a complementarity, this is Bohr speaking, there's a complementarity also between the clarity and the rightness of a statement. Um, so there's a complementarity between the clarity on the one hand and the rightness of a statement. Uh, so that so much so uh, that a statement which is too clear always contains something false. So the whole notion of truth, of knowledge, of um, uh, of the kind of what that is and what constitutes it um, ha- has changed. And also we've talked about in, in, through modern philosophy, modern Western philosophy, this has all shifted. So whether it's through the emptiness, whether it's through philosophy or um, science, modern science, or whether it's just through having the artistic uh, kind of sensibility, personality, inclination, the more poetic attitude that some people just have, uh, if you like, uh, more more than others. Um, all of that um, allows us and opens up for us of uh, what I want to call the art of perception, the poetry of perception, and allows us to play with that. And that's really what I want to talk about. What's involved in that? What do I mean by all that? So, all this is complex. In terms of conceptual frameworks, it's complex and reality and what is real and what is truth and how do we know anything, the epistemology, the ontology, all that. And I've talked um, some, at least, in in other talks about that. So I'm not going to go too much into that, but really to dwell (coughs) on filling out what's what's involved in this art, in this poetry. So... What I would like to emphasize more, again, is this, um, related to the emptiness thing, but this seeing image as image. And we could also say seeing cosmopoesis as cosmopoesis, as poesis, excuse me, as art, poetry, as making, as fabrication. So, So central to our art, our poetry of perception, is seeing, recognizing, acknowledging, not forgetting, image as image. Now, I am certainly open to the idea, not not only open, I I, I, uh, I feel very comfortable with the idea of extrasensory perception and and all that, in in, in some instances, when the mind's in certain condition, etc. But for this retreat, for these teachings, and for us mostly, most of the time, um, it will will be much more helpful not to think in terms of ESP and ghosts and all all that kind of stuff, Seeing image as image, seeing image as as metaphor and um, and cosmopoesis as cosmopoesis, and uh, uh, filled out what that means. But we'll, we'll come back to it again. So important. So that's integral to our art. Bonus of Ferrara, fourteenth uh, century alchemist, uh, had a phrase, "Solutio." That's a Latin word, "Solutio." Uh, uh, is the root of alchemy. In other words, making making solutions, uh, making what is solid, turning what is solid, what is concretized, what is believed in as uh, in in a rigid way, in a fixed, solid, concretized way, making that solid, making that uh, a solution, making it liquid, seeing image as image, seeing cosmopolis is not fixed, it's not literal, it's not concretized in the perception, in the conception. And that's the root of alchemy. 
we'll see how we do with time on this retreat, but um, uh, alchemy is another word for what, for this poetry of perception, very much. We're in the business, um, or in the art, of transforming, um, actually rather transubstantiating, um, more accurately, um, our our uh, notions and our, our, our perceptions, our sense, our very sense of matter, of the world, of the self. Of course, there's a transformation as well of the self in that. And also of divinity. And this idea, going back to Walter Wink's thing, of changing God. That God is not a, a fixed being. Divinity is not a fixed. There's something very deep in this. I've talked about it in other talks and, and uh, maybe come back to that. But this is what we mean. This art is an alchemy. It's a transubstantiation and through perceptions. A poetry of perception transforming all that. So as well as all that, um, integral to this art of cosmopoesis, of re-enchantment, we can list um, five other factors. Good to bear in mind, to kind of check on. Um, most of them we've touched before, but I'll just list them now. Um, so seeing images, images is one, and then five more. One is this whole idea of um, integral to the art of cosmopoesis is the whole idea of playing with ways of looking. As a part of re-enchanting the world is the, the playing with ways of looking, the flexibility, the range, the, the way we're holding that. And implicit in that is a second uh, aspect, which is um, when we're playing with ways of looking, we're also playing with, and again, the lightness of that word play, the openness of it, the adventure of it, the interest, the research, and also the seriousness. We're playing and entertaining, um, playing with and entertaining conceptions, ideas, even, even large conceptual frameworks. That's implicit in playing with ways of looking. So to recognize that and recognize it's integral to re-enchantment, it's integral to cosmopoesis, as, as we are using those words. But third, this is not a uh, purely mental thing. It involves the body. This is why we put the emphasis on the energy body and that kind of awareness. Um, this art of uh, re-enchantment, this art and poetry of perception, needs to be uh, in touch with, we need to um, keep it in touch with our body, our, our cultivating, developing, refining our body awareness and body sensitivity, and also our um, embodiment, um, uh, so that we're not only embodiment in the sense of being in touch with the body and the resonances in the energy body, the openings, the contractions, the feeling of that as we're working imaginally, but also embodiment as action. So what um, the image, uh, you, you know, my, my, the actions, how I am and how I speak, even right now, talking right now, there's a fantasy of that for me and also for you. Well, especially if you're if you're enjoying this and if you love it, there's fantasies involved um, in in the action of listening, or in the action of speaking, in the action of uh, that we do in the world. And um, this art of perception spills over um, in not only into the way we see our actions, but also in what we actually do, what it um, issues in. 
in terms of our duties, uh, our sense of duty, our sense of commitment, direction, we're going to come back to this. And of course, as part of this third aspect of the five, um, it involves the senses. The senses are, if you like, the, the um, uh, arenas of meeting uh, of, of, uh, of body and of world and of mind, if we even consider those three um, things separate. But if we do, then the senses are really the arena, the fields, um, in which in which those three, if you like, domains or aspects of existence meet: body, mind, world, and mind, heart, chitta, really, soul. Um, so, of course, when we say body, we're involving senses, and we're talking about re-enchanting the cosmos and cosmopoesis and all that. Of course, our senses are involved. So, playing with ways of looking, entertaining uh, conceptions, ideas, uh, the involvement of the body integrally, but also the involvement of the heart and heartfulness. And how absolutely essential that is uh, to this work. Uh, it's... Uh, We'll come back to this, but but it, it, it's sometimes that the heart functions as a kind of key. If it's closed, nothing can really happen imaginally. And conversely, the imaginal and the re-enchantment and the cosmic ways can open the heart in different ways. But heart and heartfulness are integral to this art. And as we said right at the beginning, so is the imagination, or more speci- more accurately, the imaginal. Uh, so five, all these five are included, need to be included, they're integral, um, and they're part of what we experiment with in, um, in this art. Uh, the, 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 the art of perception it means an experimenting, a playing with ways of looking, with ideas, with body awareness, with embodiment in action, with how we relate to the senses, playing with the heart, encouraging the heart, and playing with the imagination experimenting with all that. And this art uh, reaches out, covers, um, extends to, and involves all, all areas of our being. There's nothing in a way, necessarily, that's outside of it. Nothing at all. From the, uh, self, other, world, uh, the the mind and the 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 whole way we f- uh, feel and conceive and experience the the chitta the mind heart the soul space even the perception the conception of space of time all, all this and these areas of being these domains of being or aspects or dimensions of our existence space time self other world heart mind knowing what it is to know, as talked about before, communication, hearing, whether it's others or nature or whatever it is, music, gesture, communication in gesture, posture, movement, language and speech as part of communication, eating, seeing, smelling, all that, all the senses. And all of these are, if you like, um, playing fields, playing fields for our research. Playing fields in which we create, we acknowledge that, and in which we also discover, this this, this, uh, create-discover dualism or apparent dualism is something we'll return to as well. And within this art, within that playing, including all of that that I've just talked about, um, there there might be generalities, as we 
going back to earlier in the retreat, there's generalities of what's involved, all these factors I'm just enumerating now, but there's no specific formulaic perception. So you don't have to, if I'm, uh, uh, you know, every piece of music or every um, painting or sculpture or whatever, it's, go- it's going to be different unless I'm deliberately trying to copy something, which is, n- is not what we're emphasizing so much on this retreat. And we might start that way in terms of suggestions. But in terms of actual perceptions, there's no specific um, formulaic approach. So this art of re-enchantment, if we consider, if we actually p- pull out uh, one aspect of all, all what I've just been talking about and consider it a bit more, if we think about disenchantment in the modernist sense, um, we are that disenchantment um, comes from from a, from a number of uh, factors and, and and historical reasons, but. Just to single out two right now. Um, one is the rigidity and singularity of conception and view. This way of understanding things, this way of framing things, this conception is the truth. Everything else is not. Um, and so that's actually very characteristic of modernism, unlike what we might call postmodernism. Um, so that's something, again, that's pervasive in the culture, that's contributed to disenchantment, and we're not free to play. Playing is delegitimized. Um, playing with ways of looking is de- and ideas and conceptions and metaphors is all delegitimized. Um, but, uh, so we might come back to that, but what I want to emphasize right now is also the devaluation in relationship to um, human imagination, but, but let's say the devaluation of the imaginal and the devaluation of its epistemological value, meaning its validity as a way of knowing that we can actually know through imagination, through the imaginal, which today for most people sounds like a completely bizarre and, and even bonkers idea. And I'm not saying it's simple as an idea, but... Um, uh, but something happened to devalue the imagination and the imaginal. And again, I, I really want to spell this out to make it clear, because I, I have just come to realize that um, uh, what, what might feel very clear and obvious to me actually, actually takes time for people to digest um, as a sort of set of ideas and, and approaches. So when I use the word, when we use the word imaginal, Implied in that word, or what constitutes the imaginal, um, or imaginal practice, is not just that it involves the use of the imagination. Um, that doesn't necessarily qualify something as imaginal. So again, I'd just like to go through a list of seven, um, if you like, aspects of, of uh, the imaginal, as we're using that word, if you like, the authentic imaginal. But, but, but um, just... Let's say as we're using as we're using that term, um, we are using that term imaginal. And these are connected, these seven. But it's it's to me it's worth re- repeating them, um, uh, even though you will have heard them before. So the first one, and th- th- not in any order, and I say they overlap and connect. They some of them imply each other, but it's important to spell them out. First one is that the imaginal needs to involve and imply um, soulfulness and soul making. So, um, 
you know, even some use of the imagination in regard to something that has kind of mythic themes um, doesn't necessarily qualify as imaginal. So I saw on um, TV the other day there was an ad- advertisement of some computer game, which I can't remember what it was called. Uh, like you get it on I don't know, your phone or whatever. But um, And it involved kings and dragons and rescuing princesses and uh, maybe not the princesses bit, but whatever, kings and dragons and wars and all that kind of stuff. Um, and... Something, uh, you know, this just because the themes are sort of um, typically mythic themes, um, it doesn't qualify as as uh, imaginal um, unless they're soul making. Now, it could be soul making at times for certain people. Oftentimes, what it seems to me, watching people who are involved in that kind of thing, is it, it doesn't seem to be soul making. Um, but also. Uh, corollary point of that is um, usually when people are playing those kinds of games there's not um, mindfulness involved mindfulness in relationship to images in other words um, I mean there might be a keen awareness especially if it's happening in real time and you've got to react and all that but um, mindfulness in the sense of uh, we're talking about sensitivity to the emotions that are uh, constituted, elicited in in relationship to the images, the the soul resonances, the soulfulness, the what's happening in the energy body. All this is fundamental to what we might call imaginal practice, and usually is not there in relation to that kind of game. Uh, it could be, but usually it's not. Um, so that's the first one: soulfulness and soul making. The second aspect. Um, Again, relate all related to these seven um, is is what we could call depth, and um, hesitant with that word a little bit, but let's call it depth. By which I mean uh, two things. One is dimensionality. So when it comes to images that are sort of um, uh, mixed with perceptions of materiality in the world, um, if you like, like the cosmopoesis, um, the dimensionality, the depth means. It's not just a, a kind of flatness, one-dimensionality um, of existence that the typical secular modernist view uh, of scientific materialism would kind of hold and assume about the nature of what is real. So there's a sense wrapped up in the imaginal of, of dimensionality that way. Um, but there's also a sense of... Um, depth as a kind of inexhaustibility, um, a mystery, an impossibility to fully understand. Um, uh, The the image. There's always more to this image than I can quite understand or capture or put into a box or convey. Um, When we, or if there's an image that we fully understood, or if we believe that we fully understood an image, in other words, if we put it in a box, summed it up, explained it in a word, can convey it to someone else, um, we can explain it. Uh, I don't know if I said already that word explain, ex plain, plain, to make plain, to make flat, as in a, a plane, um, P-L-A-N-E, um, uh, it's to flatten something again, to lose this this depth of inexhaustibility, of mystery, of um, beyondness, if you like. Um, if we do that with an image, 
either there is a, a so-called image that is not inexhaustible and we, and we uh, end up exhausting it, or we believe that we've exhausted it because we've explained it and put it in a box, then probably, uh, well, not probably, but almost certainly what will happen is the image no longer arises for us spontaneously. It's like it's lost its life. It's lost its vitality and it actually won't arise. It's done its work. Either it's done its work because it, was only going to explain that thing, whatever it was, or we've. Um, but but more accurately, um, because the image is a dependent arising, it depends on my idea of it, on the way that I'm conceiving it, on the image, if you like, the image that I have of the image, the conception, the fantasy of of images in general. And because of that, I'm no longer, I've I've flattened it, I've explained it, I've limited its uh, inexhaustibility, I've truncated it, it no longer has this depth, and so it's no longer being nourished by that idea and that sense of inexhaustibility, that conception of inexhaustibility. And so it's missing a whole uh, dimension of vitality, a whole nourishment of vitality, and it dies dies for us. Uh, this, the, just by, by the way, this, this uh, idea of inexhaustibility, or big, bigger than we can get our head around, also applies to ideas, and sometimes to the ideas that are mixed with images. And this is something I want to talk about perhaps on another retreat. Um, but there's something that happens when an idea or a concept or a metaphysic or a conceptual framework is actually bigger I can't quite fully um, polish it off and put it in a box. It it remains somehow bigger than me, and, and there's an element of mystery to it. And then that idea is actually very fertile. And all this has to do with something again I've explained elsewhere about the sort of the soul dynamic, the way that soul making happens through the. Um, mutual expansion, mutual insemination, nourishment, enrichment, deepening, opening, widening of uh, psyche, of image, of logos, of conceptual framework, and also of eros, of the movement of eros. Um, all all of this is connected. Now I'm not going to I'm not going to repeat that now. So soul making. Depth as dimensionality and inexhaustibility. The third um, aspect of the imaginal is the otherness and the autonomy of the image. So that there's a sense or a conception or a feeling of the image as if it has its roots or it originates not just in my uh, my personal human history. Um, again, as regarded from a typically humanist point of view. We're going to return to this. It's it's a delicate question about how our personal history fits in with all this and the genesis of images. But neither is it conceived uh, of as arising just from my my, uh, neurophysiology and neuronal network in my brain, etc. But there's an otherness and an autonomy to images that we're granting them that um, we're playing with the idea, we're entertaining the idea of their otherness, their autonomy. Uh, and so instead of that more uh, reductionist explanation of how they arise, where they come from, um, there's a sense related to this um, otherness of their divinity, that their roots, if you like, their origins are are in divinity, or there is a a dimension of the image. 
dimension of whether that's an image of the world in cosmopoiesis or an image of another person or self or or a purely intra-psychic image, there's a sense of the divinity, the roots in and the dimensions of divinity. And that could be, as I said before, very vague, uh, what that even means, what that involves, and that's completely okay, that vagueness is okay. So that's a fourth aspect. A fifth aspect um, is that the image, the imaginal, um, brings and or conveys meaningfulness to us. You can see how these overlap because that's part of soul making, of course. And it doesn't necessarily mean a meaning, again, that I can say it means X or it means Y. Meaningfulness is a fuller term, a richer, again, there's an inexhaustibility to it. So personally, it brings a sense of personal, something uh, or or a dimension of personal meaningfulness. It impacts our lives, impacts our commitments and direction, as I was saying earlier. And that doesn't necessarily mean I come up with a specific plan. I'm going to travel to to this place and I'm going to do that there for X years. And this is, you know, meaningfulness is something, uh, commitments, sense of commitment and direction can be much more... um, non-specific than that, non-planned. But meaningfulness has to do with what's really deeply important to us as human beings as well. So all that, the imaginal, carries, conveys to us, brings with it all that, um, those those uh, uh, aspects and the aliveness, the vitality of meaningfulness. Um, the sixth is uh, what we've said before, and keep emphasizing image as image. Seeing image as image is part of what constitutes imaginal in the way that I'm talking about it. Um, we're talking about it. <coughs> um, and also, um, what we said before related to that, um, that the conceptions that we're entertaining and the frameworks that we're, conceptual frameworks we're entertaining um, uh, that are related to those images that we're perceiving and, and playing with um, whether those concepts and frameworks are explicitly stated, articulated, whether they're just implicit, we, we, we recognize that we're not holding them as truths, we're not believing in them. So that's the sixth aspect. And seventh aspect is that all these first six together, um, all together, they um, mean that the imaginal is a... Uh, a realm of beauty, and images have a beauty to them, uh, and sacredness, beauty and sacredness. But I mean both those words um, very widely. So the beauty might not be uh, apparent to us at first, in fact. Um, It might feel completely opposite. This is a horrific image, it's disturbing, it's ugly, etc., um, but something usually happens in, in, in this way of working with such images that uh, the, the, we, we come to see their beauty or, or they transform or we come, we come to expand our sense of beauty just as our, sense of sa- our senses, plural of sacredness, are expanded. So there's no prescription here, there's no narrow meaning of what beauty and sacredness mean, but the imaginal characteristic of the imaginal is beauty and sacredness. So when we talk about um, the kind of enchantment that we're emphasizing on this retreat, what we call tentatively mature, imaginally based enchantment, it will involve all of this too, because it involves the imaginal, it involves all of that. Yeah. So this is integral to this art of perception.
And within all this, like again, it, it, going into what does it mean if we really, if we're really going to view this and, and engage in this as an art, as as art. Um, first of all, it involves a recognition that our lives um, and the perceptions of our lives already involve fantasy and Im- image. They're already imbued and um, full of that, especially where we love, especially where there's meaningfulness uh, for us, etc. To not recognize that, I, I would say, is psychologically naive. Um, and I've again, talked about that on other talks. I'm not going to labor that right now. Um, I want to read you, rather, um, a, uh, a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, uh, really, it's his encouragement to... Um, to engage in this art, in this kind of art. So he says, ultimately man, human being, ultimately man finds in things, excuse me, ultimately man finds in things nothing but what he himself has imported into them. Okay, so there's a strong statement, dependent arising, fabrication, understanding, right there. Um, so much ahead of his time, such a radical, deep, insightful thinker. Ultimately, man finds in things nothing but what he himself has imported into them. The finding is called science. The importing, we call art, religion, love, pride. So this a part of this art of perception is, is, is the idea that we're importing. We're realizing that. And it's also part of what we might call the spiritual religion. It's also there when we love, etc. Um, but then he goes on to say, and this is, this is even more interesting, if you like, even more radical. Even if this uh, should be a piece of childishness, um, even if this importing should be a piece of childishness, one should carry on with both and be well dispo- disposed towards both. Uh, both the finding and the important, importing, but also the importing that's coming from child, childishness, projection from childhood, we could say, um, and also other kinds of importing. Some, this is him continuing now, some should find, others, we others, should import. So this is interesting to me, his encouragement to engage in the importing, to engage in this kind of bringing something deliberately to perception, to play with it, to, to engage in the art of it, even when it is, in his words, childishness or based on pride. So, he, 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 for example, when it um, involves proje- what we call projections based on one's childhood experience and hurts and wounds, etc. So this is strange. This is completely opposite of what a lot of modern psychology would say. Even when it's based on childishness and pride, um, engage in the importing. We think, why? Why? Partly because of the necessity, in a way, the fundamental necessity of recognizing um, the more general and important principle of importing, that importing is going on. And that that recognition of that might be possible even um, uh, through um, childish projections and pride, whatever, uh, all that. Uh, it's not restricted to that. It's not that those are the only times where uh, we're importing, so to speak, um, in those kinds of instances. 
but uh, and it's not as if um, sometimes we import and there's the possibility of not importing of a bare attention of this being so-called being with things as they are the phrase of the Buddha that's basically misinterpreted I think of receiving purely the facts of reality to recognize the fact of importing and actually he's encouraging it quite a radical teaching and that, you know, again, in, in, in the ideas that are underpinning and allowing and opening up this art for, this art for us, the art of perception, there's this recognition of the infinite possibilities of interpretation. Um, so this is interesting. I think it was, I was listening to something, uh, just a little thing by uh, Glenn Mullen, who's a, 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 another Buddhist teacher. And he was saying how his teacher had said to him that once that... Um, a lot of Buddhist teachers, I mean classical Buddhist teachers, Nagarjuna and Asanga and Atisha, Atisha and people like this, um, they deliberately wrote in a style that would be open to multiple interpretations. It goes back to the, partly to the Bork, the Niels Bohr thing. There's a different, um, a, a, a different creative style, writing style. Um, and so why would why would you do that? Um, well, to encourage the creativity of the seeker, of the student, um, etc., to encourage their exploration. So if you know like a text like the Mula Madhyamaka Karaka, the um, uh, fundamental verses on, on the Middle Way by Nagarjuna, is like absolutely um, seminal, central text to all Mahayana Buddhism, certainly. Um, uh, and how over the centuries and still nowadays uh, contemporary western teachers how differently they interpret um, not not just certain passages from the book but the whole um, project or the whole thrust of what Nagarjuna even means by emptiness so uh, such a range to the interpretation in Buddhist Tantra as well um, there's uh, certain tantric texts uh, original tantras that they have many commentaries written on them, and some of the commentators um, give four levels of meaning to every, um, sometimes every word or every um, sentence or, or whatever it is. So, for example, the Tantric Chandrakirti in his commentary on the Guya Samaja, these just enumerates all the time. There's four levels of meaning in this text. Interesting, also in Kabbalistic teachings, there's also four levels of meaning to every verse or, or word in the Bible. Uh, it's called Pardes. Uh, it's an acronym um, for the four levels. Um, Pardes also means, as uh, related to our word, paradise or, or, or garden. So the entering into this openness, this multiplicity of meaning, and, and going into the meanings and making them uh, lived and alive and soulful is, is entering the garden. But in, in both the Tantric commentaries and the Kabbalistic commentaries, all the meanings are valid. It's not one over the other. They're all valid. You know, the, the Bible, uh, both the Old and New Testament, are um, much easier to read in, in these kind of ways than, say, the Pali Canon, because the Bible is, to me, c clearly written in a kind of mythical language. It's amenable to, it's open to that, um, that multiplicity of interpretation because it's imaginal. Again, it was only with the rise of um, 
Protestantism and the kind of literalism and the wanting to reduce the Bible to one singular meaning. Everything just means one thing and you're either right or wrong and it's all very literal. Um, but uh, it's a little tr- trickier with a text like the Pali Canon. If you know, it's very hard to take it, uh, most of it, um, kind of in any kind of mythical way. Yeah, so... Um, but this multiplicity of interpretation, you also see it with, with Western philosophers. I mean, the, the divergence of opinion on what Kant really meant by something, or Hegel, or uh, Nietzsche, or Heidegger, or Derrida, it's like it's... Uh, and some of them, um, it's pretty clear that they're writing in a pretty ambiguous style, uh, in, in a way that's open to, to plurality. And they're even acknowledging that, for instance, Derrida. Um, but for us, what all this means is this... this infinite possibility of interpretation, um, it, it, it legitimizes and, and uh, uh, grounds and opens up for us this poetic, artistic attitude. Not just in regard to, to texts and um, Buddhist texts or whatever, whatever texts, but also to existence. This poetic attitude to existence. We're talking about uh, alchemy before. It's really what that involves. Poetry and art. The poetry and art of perception. It's actually William Blake, uh, uh, who was both an artist and a poet, um, wrote some, somewhere or other, wrote, a double vision is always with me. Meaning, yes, of course, I can see the things that we all agree on now in our post-scientific revolution, um, Western Enlightenment uh, agreement on things. Of course I can see on that. That's one of my visions. But I have another vision, a double vision, a second vision is always with me, and that's the imaginal vision. Um, this multiplicity, because there are multiple vision, is, is, is possible. And it's interesting, it's an artist and a poet, someone, uh, a mystic, but someone who, who um, had that sensibility, that kind of attitude, and had it to exist, uh, you know, um, broadened it to existence. So yes, going right back to the beginning of the talk, there's um, the imaginal realm conceived of as something real, or completely out of extreme com- conceived of as complete, complete, uh, completely non-real, completely invalid, uh, completely a waste of time. Um, where, or rather, my tendency and encouragement is 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 more um, to view the imagination, not the imaginal realm, not so much as something that's real, but as, a, if you like, more a mode of attention, a mode of awareness, a mode of being, if you like, um, which includes conceptual frameworks and ways of looking, playing with that, modes of conceiving, modes or, or ways of looking, and that and that um, uh, opens up the the imaginal realm. And the Madaram is really a mode of being, a mode of attention, a mode of awareness, ways of looking and conceiving. William Blake wrote something even more uh, radical, if you like, or, or strange sounding to modernist ears. He said, imagination is the saviour. Imagination is the saviour, or imagination is the Christ on about imagination is the same imagination is the Christ and, and even within that what does he mean when he says Christ saving us from what imagination is saving us from what 
the imaginal saves us from what? From, from the flatland. From single vision. What he calls Newton's sleep. Um, from an absence of soul making. And also from what Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche um, almost uh, kept drawing attention to. The um, dead end of modernist nihilism. So it's through this art and through the imaginal that the dead end of modernist nihilism um, can be um, transcended, gone, gone, gone through, and then gone beyond. And the meaninglessness that pervades existence, the valuelessness that pervades existence, um, as Nietzsche pointed out, it needs an art to go go beyond that and not get stuck in a modernist nihilism. There's more to this. Imagination is the saviour, is the Christ. So if we think about um, the ways that we can conceive of or view or relate to perception, perceptions. <clears throat> so one is a very um, sort of normal and, if you like, for us, obvious way is that perceptions are received. They're received from the reality of the world. They reflect or represent that reality. And um, so... Uh, this is, as I said, normal assumption, a normal mode of um, conceiving of perception as we um, move through the world. Maybe it's necessary at times. Of course, we we relate to perception that way. And it's part of how we move in the world. So perception as something received. But secondly, it's, it's possible to relate to perception, um, this is more subtle, perception as a Gift or grace from the divine, from God. And this is also received, but it has a whole other dimensionality to it. Um, my perception, even the simplest perception, is, is a gift or a grace from, from the divine. But because we investigate in meditation uh, this flexibility of perception and we investigate the dependent arising of perception, fabrication, dependent arising of perception, we can also come to see through all that, through playing with all that in practice, that perception can also be regarded in a third way as opportunity. Perception as opportunity. Through perceiving this way, through this cosmopoesis, through this image, through this fantasy of myself and other and, and what's happening, um, there is opportunity, is related to the word uh, door, porta, opportunity, porta is door in Latin. Uh, some We can, uh, through the image, something, all kinds of possibilities open for us, open for consciousness, for the heart, for the being, for the life, for meaningfulness, for soul, all of that. So perception as opportunity, as door. And didn't uh, Jesus say, I am the way? So imagination, imaginal perception as doors, as opportunities. I am the way, because I am a way, if you like. Um, Opportunity. And related to that fourth way of conceiving or viewing perception is, what about this? Perception as redemptive work. Perception as redemptive work, and again tying it back to Christ. Christ is the redeemer, right? If you know the uh, the lingo from Christianity, perception as redemptive work. So re-enchantment as redemptive work. 
from the disenchantment that's so pervasive um, uh, through the cosmopoiesis, through you could uh, we are redeeming something, we're healing something, but it's through perception. And but also the emphasis on work. This is something that we can actively engage in, actively practice, actively um, play with, like art is work. We talk about works of art. So Tantra can be viewed as redemptive work, redeeming the whole perception of self, other, world, matter, all of that. And actually one way, for, for those of you who are a little bit familiar with Tantric teachings, and again I hope at some point in the future to talk more about this on uh, another retreat, we can regard the imaginal realm as what's called the Sambhogakaya. It's one of the... Um, the Buddha bodies, or the, the Trikaya, or the three bodies of the Buddha. Uh, so there's the uh, aspects, if you like, of Buddha nature, or dimensions of Buddha nature, and Buddha nature in this sense of um, uh, a, a kind of divinity, really, all-pervasive, ultimate mind uh, that is not separate from the world, from matter, etc. Um, so this... this um, realm of the imaginal. The imaginal realm is the Sambhogakaya. It's one of the bodies, if you like. And again, notice the language. One of the bodies of, of the Buddha nature, of the divinity. And again, the, the Christ. So tying, tying all this together, there's, there's similarities there. Imagination is the Christ. Sambhogakaya is the realm of the imaginal, the realm of um, divine appearances, t- uh, the... Uh, Appearances of tantric deities and, and mandalas and Buddha realms, etc. All that sambhogakaya, and it's an aspect of Buddha nature as ultimate reality, as as the divinity, the divine consciousness, if you like, or, or and and that way that pervades the whole world. More still about this art and and uh, the art of perception. Some of you will will be will be artists or musicians or, or write poetry uh, seriously, etc. And uh, don't you recognize that when we make uh, a piece of art or, or music or compose music or or, or a poem, um, how in making it it makes you, it shapes you. The work itself feeds back and and influences and shapes, especially if one takes one's time and edits and revises and look, look be, uh, it, it spends time with the work in 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 the, in the subtle shaping of it. We shape it; it shapes us. Similar with imaginal and the art of perception. We we're acknowledging that we shape it. There's an art there, but it shapes us too. And what I mentioned earlier, there's a recognition that we both um, are creating, uh, we create this work of art, but somehow we also discover it. Again, sometimes you have this sense, as I think as Michelangelo said, it's like I'm just chipping away at the marble to reveal the sculpture that's already underneath. That's how he thought of it. And sometimes there's a sense of like, I'm getting to something, I'm revealing, I'm uncovering something, we're discovering the, the piece of art that we're creating. And we recognize this both and. And uh, perception and imaginal perception, we, we can view, view them the same. Tom Cheatham, uh, 
I read a little passage by him where he says, this word invention, so it's another word for creation, right? Invention, comes from the Latin invenire. Uh, invenire, which literally means to come upon. In other words, to discover. So the original meaning of invention was discovery. Um, it's only in the late 16th century with the rise of the whole modern sense and experience of self and subjectivity um, that the whole uh, notion of, uh, or the whole meaning of the word invent make, came to mean to make something up. It flipped 180 degrees what it, what it actually means. But as I said, all this, this create, discover, this shaping and being shaped, we recognize that um, in, in relation to images. We recognize also this slip historically, um, the movement away from discovering images in the imaginal realm as if they had some kind of objective reality towards they're just made up. It's just, just rubbish, isn't it? And with that, um, correspondingly, the um, devaluing of the imaginal as ways of knowing, the devaluing of, of, of the imaginal epistemologically. So art, this notion of art and our encouragement then through these practices, now it's like meditation, really what I would like to, um, and I hope you can get this feeling on this retreat, is that it extends to life. This whole notion of art extends to life, to the ways we feel and see ourselves, others, or the whole of existence. So art as, you know, the usual way we think about art, then the art of meditation and the art of playing with perception and meditation, then it actually just becomes life. The thing, I have to sit in a certain posture, and it's all very formal, I have to go on retreat for X amount of time, just becomes life. This is how we live, in the art of perception, or recognizing life, existence, as the art of perception. There's another little quote from uh, Nietzsche. Um, He writes, We should learn from artists while being wiser than they are in other matters. For with them, this subtle power, uh, the power of making things, of making beauty, of arranging things, of interpretation, uh, of, of recognizing the work of art as both created and discovered, all that uh, that's involved in for artists. Um, for with them, this subtle power usually comes to an end where art ends and life begins. But we want to be the poets of our life. First of all, in the smallest, most everyday matters. So these little moments, little shifts, small everyday matters, um, the imaginal comes and touches us on the arm. Something opens in the perception, just for a moment or two. These these are important moments. We can... um, Go with them, open them, nourish them, um, explore them, capitalize on them, etc. And the encouragement to really do that deliberately so that this art perception extends to the whole of our existence. And if we regard and relate to the the senses uh, that we have and the views, the perceptions 
<coughs> that we have of, of the self, of the other, of the cosmos. If we regard and relate to these as works of art, again, listen to the words there, works of art, um, then to me that implies that we can never reduce or fully comprehend self, other, world. Again, back to this inexhaustibility. Um, as works of art, they have um, an inexhaustibility. Uh, the very sense of them is something that uh, has a beyondness to it. Uh, can never fully reduce them or uh, to some explanation or fully comprehend them even. So, you know, um, part of the problem with scientism uh, is that it tries to explain everything from a certain... Um, uh, tries to explain everything from a certain framework and point of view and assumption and uh, reality base, from materialism and reductionism. Um, but this simply will not do. It simply doesn't um, match or meet or extend really to what needs uh, to to the, to the beauty of things and the soul of things and the meaningfulness of things. So to always explain things in terms of neurology or biology or evolutionary, you know, biological evolutionism or, you know, from the reductionisms of materiality. You know, analyzing a, a great painting in terms of its, the molecular structure of the paint and the canvas, um, it might be interesting to a certain extent, it might explain something, but the art... Where's the art? It will explain nothing about the actual art. About meaning, uh, it will explain nothing about the meaning or the meaningfulness that that painting has for us and how it moves us and what moves us in it and what's most important to us. So the most important thing about this painting is what it does for the, for the soul, so to speak. Um, and a materialist explanation can do nothing to explain that. Uh, it goes goes very uh, almost does not go anywhere at all towards explaining that. And I would also add to this that great art, um, if, if we can use such a word without sounding pompous, great art is 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 never going to be fully understood. There's always something that's beyond even what the artist can can sometimes get their their heads around uh, or or intended. It's only kind of um, Whatever the opposite of great art is, poor, poor art that can be kind of um, summed up and explained and fully understood. There's this inexhaustibility um, uh, to me. Good art repays um, what we what we bring to it in terms of our attention. It will repay us. It will nourish us. It will delight us and open to us and reveal more and more we will, uh, of itself. We will discover more and more in dimensions to the degree and dependent on the, the, the energy and the quality of the attention we bring to it. The, the openness and the fullness of our re receptivity, our sensitivity, the aliveness of, of the energy and the um, attention that we bring to it. And to that degree, it keeps repaying. Whereas a, a, um, uh, there's a fertility, too, uh, as well, to um, to 
really great pieces of art. Um, they can be impre- appreciated in different ways. They can be sorry. They can be approached in different ways. Um, so, for example, something like Hamlet or something. How many different ways of doing doing that play or a Beethoven symphony you can interpret it this way, that way. So all this um, is is connected to um, is is relevant to the art of perception. The art of, in other words, uh, and what we perceive, self, other, world. There's this inexhaustibility there um, if, if we really regard them as, as works of art. Uh, but we recognize too, again, the, the, filling out the parallels, we recognize the dependent arising, um, especially the art aspect, if you like, it's it, uh, the, the beauty, the meaning and the meaningfulness, the emotions that uh, a piece of art, a work of art elicits for us. We recognize both in the realm of like conventional art and in the realm of this art of perception, we recognize the dependent arising. So in the realm of conventional art, it's in, it's, um, there's a, um, the beauty, the meaning, the meaningfulness, the emotions, all of that um, are, are a dependent arising that come out of the conflux of the aliveness of the interaction of the artist, of the art piece, of the audience or spectator or whatever, the, um, the, the context, uh, information we have, others' views about this piece, influence, influence what happens for us, um, uh, others' views about art in general or about life, um, uh, life in general, existential views. Uh, even report to the artist's views come and affect how we view this art. Of course they do. Or generally other authorities, people we give authority and whose views we give authority to. Or just the, the authority of the dominant culture just because it's pervasive and popular. All this, all, all these mixed together in a dependent rising and the, the things that are important to us in the art are recognized to be dependent arising out of all that. So all this too, we recognize it's the same, just as for art, it's just the same for the imaginal, for cosmopoiesis, for enchantment. So, so many parallels there with art. And again, we can go even, even, even and state one more. So some, sometimes there is a person's working with the imaginal um, or these ideas of cosmopoiesis and then thinks, uh, this is nuts, this is completely crazy, or this doubt about reality and unsureness about that that we've touched on. A very normal, very understandable, maybe an important part of this process nowadays. But again, putting it into parallel um, with, with the artistic process or our relationship with art we probably don't, you probably don't consider art that you love, uh, uh, you don't consider it nuts. It's art, it's not nuts. It's not about reality. So it doesn't come in there like that. Um, and, and even more than that, we can be deeply moved um, by some piece of art and whatever me- media it is, and moved not just emotionally and not just in ways that we can understand or reductively explain Oh, it's a piece about impermanence. Uh, it's a poem about my childhood, or whatever. Um, so the ways that art moves us um, is uh, beyond even even what we can kind of uh, understand, or how it's moving us, or what's being moved. There's an unfathomability, a complexity, a mystery um, in of the very resonances for the soul. 
the emotions and the body and the perceptions. And that that unfathomability also in the resonance is deeply important. It's, it's, it's uh, moving to us. Has its effects. All of which um, uh, are, are functioning without um, an idea that this is reality. Because we know it's art, or it's a movie, or it's a novel, or whatever. Without, without a notion that this is reality, yet still it does something powerful to the soul. Same thing with images, same thing with seeing an image as an image with cosmopoesis. It's, it's not um, hampered by, by qualms about reality. And, and it doesn't need to be even a realist art, or even uh, related, this art, this um, painting or whatever it is, or, or music, doesn't have to have any uh, relation to anything recognizable in, in my life or in anyone's life. An abstract painting. Why is it that Rothko is so moving, so deeply moving to so many people, and in so many different ways? Or Howard Hodgkin, or whatever it is. Or, or music that has no words to it. Can't say it's about anything that you could put into words. It's not translatable, it's not reducible. And even more than this, in terms of this relationship with reality, and does it, do we need, when we view something as art, it liberates it from this kind of tight, literalistic relationship with reality. And so it can do its soul work for us. It can do its transformative work. It can open up something without this hampering or these, um, these kind of uh, qualms regarding realism. I think it was, as a slightly different point, but I think it was um, Oscar Wilde, I can't remember, but I recognize this for myself. He said something like... Uh, um, I can't remember exactly how much he, uh, how much it broke his heart as much as any uh, uh, person, any event of, to do with an actual person in his life. Um, what happened to, um, I think it was someone in a, in a novel by Balzac, that he somehow, and I recognize this too with certain characters in novels, for instance, or um, certain historical figures. Um, that have mean a lot to me that I don't, I've never met, and they're dead now, and I never will meet them. Um, but I somehow care for them. I love them, as Oscar Wilde said. Also, I care for them. And I love them as much as real people. I think how strange. Now, of course, if we're locked into this um, uh, kind of dogma uh, that goes some, sometimes with certain mindfulness teachings or certain insight meditation teachings that. Um, being with the so-called real is what's really important. And then this whole idea of, of really loving a character in a novel or, uh, or a fictional arti- you know, character that's a product of art and loving and caring for them as much as we do for the so-called real people in our life, this, this, this is a totally taboo direction would strike a person as a bit mad or quickly wants to interpret it as like, oh yes, it's because they represent um, a factor of your heart, like your compassion, or whatever. And even with the real people in our life, the flesh and blood friends and relatives and family and loved ones and whatever it is, lovers, maybe... uh, 
what we love about them is uh, their divine dimensions, what we might call their divine dimensions. This is what moves us, this is what we care about. It's not um, taking away anything from the human, it's actually just expanding what is involved in what the human being is, or how we see human beings. So both a subject and object. When I love someone, it's because I'm sensitive to and resonating to and, and moved by, um, if you like, the, their, the divine dimensions of their being. Now that could involve the whole of their being, but it's a way of seeing You know, often um, people want to think that um, beliefs and also the creation of beauty in, in one's life and aesthetics and things are for the purpose of consolation. Because of our existential situation, maybe not being able to face up to that, people believe certain things, so the idea goes, and sometimes even the creation of beauty is to soften the sort of um, <coughs> brute uh, horrors of of of, of our ex- of, of existence and the facts of our existence. But if we uh, question that, and if we trans translate, you know, um, the idea of believing to this idea of a, the flexibility of a, a range of conceivings of views of ways of looking that we're entertaining and we're holding them lightly and not as true and if we're also holding this idea of the otherness and the autonomy of images of an image um, that means that its beauty is uh, not just created but also discovered because there's this otherness this autonomy so these two ideas together, belief becomes flexible, flexible range of conceptions and ways of looking. And otherness grants that we discover beauty and not just create it for our own purposes. Then the whole idea of belief and beauty being for the purpose of consolation in our life, uh, of reassurance, that crumbles a little bit. It opens up in a different direction. And belief and beauty... Uh, or if you like, con- conceptions entertained and beauty created and discovered. They're aspects of the creative um, act of perceiving and perception. And that means they're aspects of being, because our being is perception, if you like. That also includes, as I said, the beauty of embodied action in creativity and kindness in ethics. But beauty, creation of beauty, discovery of beauty, and um, and also this playing with you could say playing with beliefs. Let's say playing with conceptions and views, ways of looking. They become fields of play, fields of opportunity, soul making. That becomes the point rather than consolation, soul making. So just to finish, you know, all all of this. Um, Recognizing um, the the, the um, fact of fantasy and image um, uh, 
in our lives, in our perceptions, and also the understanding of emptiness, these things, these two recognitions, um, uh, allow this art of perception. They open it up, they form its ground, they legitimize it. It's very different from um, realist, concretizing views that the dominant view of secular modernity, the kind of existentialist views that permeate a lot of our culture, a lot of philosophy, a lot of psychology, and, and, and more and more a lot of dharma, and secular, secular Buddhism, um, really uh, are, are formed on, take off from, have their basis on realist assumptions, oftentimes without completely being honest about it. So, for example, the now popular replacement of the word truths in the Four Noble Truths by tasks. And as I said before, it's just really... Um, it, it seems like um, an important move, but still underpinning all that is a whole assumption about what is true and what is real um, materially and existentially and what's not true and not real. And that's all going, uh, functioning um, with um, all kinds of limiting effects um, without being acknowledged as, as um, a perspective of, of uh, realism. It's questioning myths and assumptions that opens all this up. Questioning, questioning, questioning. So again, uh, if we share a passage from Nietzsche, uh, where he says, What is familiar uh, is what we are used to. What is familiar is what we are used to. He's talking about assumptions and views and conceptions and what seems so obvious, what is familiar is what we're used to, and what we are used to is most difficult to know. That is, to see as a problem. That is, to see as strange and distant outside us. In other words, um, uh, these ideas... uh, uh, that imbue our culture, they, as I said before, they, we, we're indoctrinated by them. We just assume that they're true and we don't even realize that they're operating. It's very hard to realize um, what is actually operating for us as, as views. And some of them we don't ever even articulate explicitly or everyone agrees with them. We never question them. But this questioning, questioning the assumptions and the myths that run through our um, views and our sense of reality. This questioning is 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 massive part of what opens things up. So, for instance, um, Charles Taylor, a, a contemporary philosopher, he's very old now, but um, wrote this massive tomb on on I think it's called a secular age on secularism, and he talks right at the beginning of that about what he calls subtraction stories. So it's the idea that. Our, our current view of things, um, the view of modernity or secularity or whatever, um, is really, uh, what we've done is really uh, shake off or expose as unreal all the superstitions. We've subtracted all the superstitions, all the nonsense and all the misapprehensions and rubbish that um, people before us used to believe. Now... We are the, um, if not the generation, the period in history following the scientific revolution and the Western Enlightenment. Now we are the ones who see things nakedly and truly and as they are because we've subtracted all that other rubbish. And you see this as well in, uh, again, fantasies of secular Buddhism as 
subtracting all the spiritual, mystical, metaphysical gobbledygook and being left with the real thing. And uh, one of the things Charles Taylor points out over a long, uh, actually more than one of his books, is is actually how this modernist view and secularist view is just as constructed as any other view in history. It results from new inventions, new technologies, um, uh, from certain shifts in self-view and and other ideas, from the history of ideas, all of that. It's constructed and conditioned. It's not a naked, objective, existential um, reality that we're dealing with. So the the myth of subtraction stories, uh, he points out, so I'm, I'm devoted to exposing the uh, the falsity of those kind of stories. So popular, so um, easy to swallow, so seemingly convincing. Philosopher Michel Foucault if, again says something similar and, and uh, in, in quite strong language. Um, he talked about, uh, sometimes he talked about his work as a kind of archaeology. In other words, digging down into the historical roots of any particular philosophy or position or social structure or idea or convention or whatever. Um, and so in that archaeology, says, we will ask them, we will ask these ideas or philosophies or whatever it is, um, uh, in this case, we're talking about questioning, like I said, the assumptions and the myths that we just take for granted, and they seem so much a part of um, what is uh, real, what is generally unquestioned. We will ask them, he says, where they come from. Uh, and we, we might say here, in relation to where they come from, and so some people will say, well, it comes from the Pali Canon. Um, but that, as I've pointed out elsewhere, that too... There's a historical fantasy. There's a fantasy of the Buddha. There's a fantasy of origins. Um, there's a fantasy um, wrapped up in that with the claim, the belief, and, and the um, assumptions that shape certain interpretations of texts or certain um, historical claims um, as being absolute and naked as it was, as it was intended to be. But Foucault says, we will ask them where they come from. Um, Towards what historical destination they are moving without being aware of it. In other words, these assumptions that we have and these views that we have, there's there's a lot of unawareness in them to echo Nietzsche. And then he continues, what naivety blinds them to the condition that makes them possible? Again, echoing Charles Taylor, how did this thing even come about? Is it really a naked reality, or is it also conditioned, constructed through history? And lastly, uh, Foucault says, and what metaphysical enclosure encloses their rudimentary positivism? In other words, again, this idea is so popular, so seemingly convincing and appealing that we can really be just empirically with things as they are and strip away all this so-called metaphysics and, and gobbledygook. But actually, there's metaphysics involved in that. I've talked about this in other talks. And as Foucault says, it's an enclosure. Um, it, it limits and it encloses what seems, what seems to be a radicalism, a rudimentary, another word for basic, positive, just these are the facts. We're stripping everything down to facts. Are you really? 
Are you really doing that? Or is there metaphysics and um, enclosure and all kinds of unquestioned assumptions wrapped up in that? This fundamental questioning is so important for, for me, so important for a practitioner, so important for our culture uh, now. It is so important to liberate this art. Um, there's another uh, quote I'd like to just read a little bit from Northrop Fry, um, just to finish. Uh, essentially, what uh, what he's calling criticism, this kind of questioning, what criticism can do, what I call critique at the beginning of the retreat, essentially what criticism or critique can do, um, according to Northrop North Fry, is awaken students to successive levels of awareness of the mythology that lies behind the ideology in which their society indoctrinates them. An awareness of the mythology that lies behind the ideology in which their society indoctrinates them. Uh, it grants students, this, this question grants students an emancipatory distance, a liberating distance from their own society and gives them a vision of a higher human state. Ultimately, this transforms their experience, he goes on, um, so that the poetic model, so he's saying something very, very similar to what we're saying uh, in the talk now, so that the poetic model becomes a model to live by in what he terms a charismatic mode. Uh, it's, a, it's a Greek word, doesn't, but, but he's really talking about this, this mode, this art of perception, being in the mode of being, of the imaginal, the art of perception, the cosmopoesis. Myths become myths to live by, what he calls myths to live by, and metaphors become metaphors to live in, which not only work for us, but constantly expand our horizons. And that relates to uh, um, the soul-making and the expansion of Eros Psyche Logos that I've talked about elsewhere. What he calls entering the world, through all this, entering the world of uh, kerygma, or transformative power. The soul-making, this re-enchantment. But it's the questioning and the insight, whether it's philosophical insight, meditative insight into dependent arising and emptiness, uh, psychological insight, recognizing that fa- how fantasy and image imbue our lives and our perceptions. All of that is the questioning and the insights that will um, liberate the possibility uh, and the range of, of this art of perception. Liberate also the depths to which it can um, be soul-making for us, nourishing and re-enchant. So liberate it, questioning inside, liberate it, they also ground it. So important.